0: For those of you who arrived recently, I'm continuing a series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta, that is the Sutta, the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness. Last week began with discussion about mindfulness of feelings I'm exploring the first line of the Buddha's instructions. When feeling a pleasant feeling, one knows I'm feeling a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, one knows I'm feeling an unpleasant feeling. When feeling a neutral feeling, one knows I'm feeling a neutral feeling. Tonight we'll look at the next lines of the discourse where the Buddha further delineates these three types of feelings in a rather unexpected way, and in a way which opens us to a deeper understanding of suffering and of happiness in our lives. The Buddha goes on to distinguish these pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings into worldly ones and unworldly ones. So in this, the mindfulness of feeling goes deeper than simply recognizing its affect. That is, noticing whether a feeling is pleasant and soothing, whether it's unpleasant or painful and hurting, whether it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Mindfulness of feeling at this deeper level noticing whether they're worldly feelings or unworldly feelings, has to do with the genesis of the feeling, what the feeling is based on. And this distinction has very profound implications for our understanding and our practice. So what are worldly feelings? These are the feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that arise out of contact with sense objects. They arise dependent on sights and sounds, smells and tastes, touch sensations. And also, these worldly feelings arise with thoughts connected to these sense objects. So these are all the ordinary experiences of the world lights, and sounds, and smells, and tastes, and touch, and thoughts. So we enjoy a good meal, or a soft touch, and as we know, there arises a pleasant feeling associated with that. Or if there's a bad smell, or a jarring sound. Some of you have been here when we've had fire alarm mishaps. It's a very jarring sound. It's so jarring that the sound forces one out of the building. It's an unpleasant worldly feeling. Well, there may be an ordinary sight that's not pleasant. It's not unpleasant. So this is a neutral worldly feeling. So all of this is simply the play of our daily experience. This is what we are experiencing and feeling many times throughout the day. Unworldly feelings, which the Buddha is pointing to, are something quite different. And they are feelings that arise associated with renunciation. Now in our culture, the idea of renunciation doesn't always inspire us because we often hear that word and it, it often sounds or feels like deprivation. That somehow we're depriving ourselves and it's something that might be good for us in the future but doesn't seem like that much fun now. So that's often how we think or feel about renunciation. <laughs> but there's another way of understanding it which is not as deprivation, but as being non-addictiveness, renunciation as non-addiction. From this perspective, we don't see it as a deprivation. Non-addiction is not felt as a deprivation. We actually can get a sense of what it means in terms of the happiness it brings us in the moment. The less addicted we are to sense pleasures, the less commotion there is in the mind. You know, we experience a much greater sense of ease, a much greater simplicity of life. So just imagine walking down the street of some town or city, you know, and you're looking at all the shop windows, imagine the mind that just wants everything. You know, it has all these nice things, pleasant things, beautiful things. And as you're walking down the street, Oh, that would be nice. I want that. That would be good. And you can just imagine the activity, the disturbance of that wanting mind. Now imagine yourself walking down the street and just seeing all of it, seeing you know, the nice things, the pleasant things, and not wanting anything. I think we can get a sense of the ease of that kind of mind state, the ease of not wanting. The Buddha had a very uh, sort of a telling remark when he said, What the world calls happiness, namely this indulgence in sense pleasure, the wanting of sense pleasures, what the world calls happiness. I call suffering. And he said, what the world calls suffering, namely renunciation, letting go of that, what the world calls suffering, I call happiness. Well, I think that we all have some taste of that. So the distinction the Buddha makes between worldly feelings and unworldly feelings. That is, feelings associated with sense objects, and feelings associated with renunciation. This distinction, as we explore it, opens up greater subtleties in our meditation practice. We begin to distinguish things that were not formally distinguished. And it leads to a dramatically different understanding Of pleasure, of happiness, and of freedom. Almost every message we get throughout our lives is that happiness comes through enjoyable, pleasant sense experience. This is the message that we're getting. And to a certain extent, it's true. We do get a kind of happiness from pleasant sense experience. We all know that. The Buddha was pointing out that although it does bring a certain kind of pleasure, there are also hidden dangers in this kind of happiness. When we rely on these pleasant worldly feelings. What are the dangers Sometimes the pleasant experience is itself ultimately harmful. I'll just give you one example, but there are countless examples. There was the cigarette advertisement, and this very beautiful couple standing there you know, in beautiful surroundings, holding a cigarette, and the caption read. I don't let anything stand in the way of my pleasure. Okay, this is for cigarettes. Well, it is pleasant for those who smoke or whoever have smoked. It can be a very pleasant experience, but it's harmful. So really the caption should read, I don't let anything stand in the way of my illness. But usually when we are addicted to whatever we're not seeing that deeply, we're not seeing that carefully, we don't see the hidden danger. There's a hidden danger in this addiction to sense pleasure of relying for pleasant worldly feelings for our happiness to the degree that we become very attached to them and then suffer when they change, as we know they do. So the impermanence of them becomes a source of unreliability. There's a hidden danger in our reliance on these pleasant worldly feelings for our happiness, because when we're not mindful, of these feelings, they continually strengthen the force of desire within us. One of the examples the Buddha gave to describe the process of what entangles us in samsara, you know, of course, the Buddha lived 2,500 years ago and a lot of India was still, uh, you know, jungle or forest, so he uses a lot of wild animal uh, images. So he describes, uh, he describes this monkey trap basically a, a patch of tar, you know, which the villagers put down. And then the monkey comes out of the woods, out of the forest, and puts one foot in and gets stuck. And then puts another one in to try to extricate himself. But then the other one gets stuck. And then front, front arms. I don't know whether they have arms, <laughs> arms, arms until the monkey is completely stuck. Well, that's what we often do. We look to sense pleasures for our happiness to these worldly pleasant feelings, and we get entangled, and then we look for another one to disentangle us, and all the time desire is getting strengthened. So the Buddha said, when one is touched by a pleasant feeling, if one delights in it, welcomes it, and remains holding to it, then the underlying tendency to lust lies within us. So this is all about the worldly pleasant feelings. In teaching about the unworldly pleasant feelings, the Buddha is pointing out a very different kind of pleasure and a different kind of happiness and it's one without these hidden dangers. It's where these pleasant unworldly feelings actually become the basis for our freedom. This understanding of the value of pleasant unworldly feelings, the value of them was not always obvious to the bodhisattva that is the Buddha to be. Now, after he left home, as you know, he left the palace at the age of 29, and at first he practiced under some of the famous teachers developing the high formless jhanas, and then saw that that was not by itself leading to liberation. So he then proceeded to practice almost six years of these intense uh, austerities, which were common at that time. And there are very vivid depictions and descriptions of these particular practices. You know, some of which, you know, were taking less and less food, less and less sleep. There's a famous uh, image statue. Uh, it's it's called the image of the emaciated Buddha, but it really refers to the emaciated Bodhisattva. You know, which which shows, and it's very striking. It's, have many of them in Thailand it said in the text that the austerity became so powerful that when the buddha reached into his stomach he touched his backbone when he reached for his backbone he <laughs> touched his stomach and out of that starving of himself well after 6 years of this kind of tormenting of the body as a way to subdue the ego, the bodhisattva realized this, this is not the path. So at that point it said, and this is quoting from the, uh, from the text, the bodhisattva, I thought, whatever recluses or brahmins in the past, present, or future, have experienced painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion. This, what I have just experienced, is the utmost. There is none beyond this. But by this racking practice of austerities, I have not attained any superhuman states, any distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. Could there be another path to enlightenment? He goes on, I considered... This was as a young boy. I recall that when my father, the Sakyan, was occupied while I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, I entered upon and abided in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought, with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Could that be the path to enlightenment? Then, following on that memory, came the realization, that is the path to enlightenment. I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I am not afraid of that pleasure, since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And after his enlightenment, the Buddha described himself to be one who lives in happiness, to one who abides in happiness. So this teaching, or this understanding, has an important message for us about the role of joy and happiness on our path. You know, there's so much emphasis, of course, on the great truth of suffering and its causes, on the need for right, even heroic effort, on the dangers of continually indulging sensual desire. There's so much emphasis on on these aspects of the teachings, it's sometimes easy to overlook that this is a path of happiness. It's a path of happiness leading to happiness. There's one sutta which describes a king of ancient India, King Pasanadi, who figures in a lot of the sutras. He wasn't one of the more spiritually inclined of the Buddha's royal disciples. He was a bit of a glutton. But he would come often to to meet the Buddha. So one time he was visiting, he was visiting the Buddha in the, the order of monks and nuns, and he described the scene. He was describing this to the Buddha himself. He was describing the scene that uh, he was seeing. This is the king saying, but here I see bhikkhus smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful, plainly delighting, their faculties fresh, living at ease, unruffled, subsisting on what others give, abiding with a mind aloof as a wild deer's. This is very much the fruit of the practice. Smiling, cheerful, joyful, delighting, faculties fresh, living at ease, unruffled, abiding with a mind aloof or free as a wild deer's. So it's in the Satipatthana Sutta on this with this instruction on mindfulness of feelings and distinguishing between the worldly ones and the unworldly ones that highlight the difference between beneficial pleasures and unbeneficial pleasures. So this is a distinction we don't often make in our lives. We don't investigate this. So just to further emphasize this point, the point of this distinction. During the time of the Buddha, there was a wealthy merchant named Visaka, who lived in the ancient city of Rajgir. And he and his wife had both attained to the third stage of enlightenment, anagamis, that is non-returners, so very, very high stage. and then his wife decided to ordain. Um, so she ordained as a nun. She became the nun Dhammadina. And soon after ordaining, she became an Arhant. And the Buddha had declared her to be the foremost nun in expounding the Dhamma. So at one point, her former husband, Visaka, goes to visit her as, as an Arhant nun and asks Asks Dhamma some questions. So he asks, what habitual tendencies underlie pleasant feelings? What habitual tendencies underlie unpleasant feelings? What tendencies underlie neutral feelings? So Dhamma replies, as we might expect. Desire or lust is the underlying tendency with pleasant feelings, aversion underlies unpleasant ones, and delusion, not knowing, forgetfulness underlies neutral ones. So that's not surprising. And as we mentioned last week, it's to remember these feelings, these underlying tendencies of greed for the pleasant, aversion to the unpleasant, neutral ignorance of the neutral feelings, these underlying tendencies need to be abandoned for liberation to be possible. And so that's the importance of becoming mindful of these feelings in order to abandon these tendencies. But then Visakha, the husband, goes on to ask a further and probing question, addressing his former wife, Lady Dhammadina, Do the habitual tendencies of desire, aversion, and delusion underlie all pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings?" And she replies, these habitual tendencies do not underlie all feelings. They do not have to be abandoned in regard to all feelings. So again, she's making this same distinction. She is saying here that there are pleasant feelings, there are pleasant feelings, feelings which bring pleasure, which are secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states. There are pleasant feelings that lead onward to enlightenment. She's also saying that there are unpleasant feelings that are not associated with aversion. These are the unworldly, unpleasant feelings. Unpleasant feelings that arise from renunciation, also leading to awakening. So what are some of these unworldly, unpleasant feelings? often in practice, we go through stages in meditation where unpleasant physical feelings predominate. And it's not that anything is wrong in the practice. That's just what is characteristic of that stage where we feel the unpleasantness in the body. Sometimes in the course of practice, we go through periods of great fear, or feeling misery, you know, or despair about how far enlightenment seems, you know, how far away it seems. So all of these unpleasant feelings can arise, but they are coming out of a certain depth of practice. They're not associated with aversion. They're actually coming out of our meditative insight Likewise, there are also neutral feelings that are not associated with delusion or ignorance. The usual worldly neutral feelings that we experience, you know, something that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, these worldly neutral feelings are associated with the blandness of objects. You know, when something's bland, it's not strikingly pleasant, it's not strikingly unpleasant. The blandness of the object conditions this neutral feeling. But there are unworldly neutral feelings that don't arise from the blandness of the object They arise from the quality of equanimity in the mind. They actually transcend the object. And we experience these in the higher states of concentration, in the fourth jhana. Equanimity is very strong, neutral feeling. We experience it during the stages of equanimity, of insight. And it's interesting that these unworldly neutral feelings doesn't have to do with the blandness of the object, it has to do with the profundity of the equanimity. These unworldly neutral feelings bring more pleasure than pleasant feelings, because they're so refined. So his reply that habitual tendency of desire, of aversion, of delusion, do not underlie all feelings and do not have to be abandoned with regard to all feelings, points to these different kind of feelings that arise, the worldly ones and the unworldly ones. It points out a different understanding of happiness and the role that this kind of happiness plays on our meditative path. And it said the Buddha approved of Dhamma reply. And somebody repeated the conversation to him. He said, Dhamma is wise. If you had asked me the meaning of this, I would have explained it to you in just the same way. So I hope you could follow all that. Because, as I say, it's not a distinction that we usually make. We just notice the first part of the instruction in the sutta, oh, is it pleasant, is unpleasant, is neutral? But the Buddha is going on to point to a further delineation, which has very striking implications for us. So our challenge as beings living in this world is that we find ourselves engaged with both kinds of feelings. We have lots of the worldly feelings arise. We live in the world of sense contact. And we often seek and enjoy the pleasures that come from these pleasant sense feelings. These are the These are the pleasures in our ordinary life situations. And yet, we also know, to some extent, we know their limitations. We know, or we wouldn't be here, that they don't bring about a sense of freedom, a sense of completion. So both in our lives in the world and on retreat, we can actually practice discerning and paying attention to the unworldly feelings as well. We're very familiar with the worldly ones. This is our ordinary experience. But can we begin to pay attention to quite specifically the unworldly ones? both the pleasant or including the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the neutral, that come from different experiences of renunciation. When we do, when we discern those kinds of feelings arising in the mind, we see for ourselves. It's no, it's no longer theory. We're, we're investigating this for ourselves in our own practice. We see that desire, aversion, and delusion do not underlie those feelings. Those tendencies are not being strengthened. Now, it's somewhat interesting. Although we know this to some extent, we don't really trust it. Because if we did, our renunciation would be perfect. And the Buddha was talking right to us when he said, Now you might think that perhaps these defiling mental states might disappear and one might still be unhappy. That is not how it should be regarded. If defiling states disappear, nothing but happiness and delight develop with tranquility, mindfulness, and clear awareness. And that is a happy state. So when we have thought, would I really be happy Without delighting in all the pleasant worldly feelings. Because that's the thought we have. You know, could I really give up the delight, renounce the delight, the attachment to them? Not the experience of them, the attachment to them. The Buddha is telling us very clearly we give up the attachment to that, and all that remains is happiness. So where do we experience the unworldly, pleasant feelings? There are many places in our lives and in our meditation practice where we can focus on this particular aspect. We experience it in times of generosity when we are renouncing the mind states of greed and of stinginess. Think of times when you were most generous. You know, giving someone something out of love or compassion or respect or gratitude. You know, when those feelings were strong in one and one was being generous... This is a very clear example, which we've all had at one time or another, of a very pleasant feeling that arises, not based on sense contact. It's an unworldly pleasant feeling. And it's a very easy access. Generosity is an easy access to this kind of feeling. That's why the Buddha, in his progressive teachings, often would begin with teachings on generosity because it was a way for people to become familiar with this kind of pleasure, this kind of happiness, not rooted in sense desire. We feel this non-sensual joy in the practice of the Brahma Viharis, you know, when we're practicing metta or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity. There's a tremendous non-sensual joy, the unworldly pleasant feeling, when the heart is filled with, with these feelings. You know, Ryokan, the, the 18th century Japanese master and poet and hermit, and he's, he's so wonderful and his poetry is so expressive. And he was a great renunciate. And so a lot of his poetry is describing these unworldly feelings. And what's so wonderful about Ryokan is that sometimes he's describing the unworldly pleasant ones, sometimes he's describing the unworldly unpleasant ones, and get a real sense of the spiritual nature of that kind of life. So here, in one of his poems, he says, if my arms draped in these black robes were only wide enough, how gladly I would shelter in them all the people of this floating world. And it's just that sense, that wonderful feeling of open-hearted compassion. There's a great delight in that. Sometimes we see the best qualities of humanity emerge in times of great suffering. And we saw this, I think, very clearly just after the tsunami, you know, where there was so much destruction and such unbelievable uh, loss of life and suffering. And it was amazing also to see the overwhelming outpouring of generosity from people all over the world. And there was a certain feeling during that time, which I'm sure you recall, I think there was a certain appreciation, unspoken appreciation, of just the purity of that feeling. People were not giving with an expectation of getting anything back. It was just that expression of compassion, of care. And so even in the face of great suffering and that compassionate response to it, there's a certain kind of happiness in just the purity of heart. This is an unworldly, pleasant feeling, even in response to suffering. It's the, it's the happiness of purity. Purity. So we feel this non-sensual joy in generosity. We feel it in the Brahma-viharas. We feel it in compassion. We feel a non-sensual happiness, pleasure, in the renunciation involved with the precepts. It's the renouncing of harmful actions and the accompanying unworldly pleasant feeling of non-remorse. Are you getting a sense of the difference between these two categories of feelings, those feelings connected with sense pleasures, and those feelings, again, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, associated with renunciation? They have a different flavor. So when we are committed to the precepts, and even if we've committed, as we all have many unskillful actions in the past, once we are committed to a path of non-harming, from the moment we undertake that commitment, there is a, there is a pleasant feeling within us around that. We feel non-remorse. We feel a certain kind of ease. We experience pleasant, unworldly feelings in the renunciation of being on retreat. You know, just as you come here and you give up kind of the familiar comforts of your lives, but you begin to enjoy the beauty of the tremendous simplicity you know, we get a taste of what King Pasanati was talking about when he was viewing the the monks and nuns all living so simply, living in this way with this degree of renunciation of complexity. There's an ease. There's a there's a wonderful feeling that can come. You know, when I'm on retreat, and I've been on retreat here for a couple of months. And it's always amazing to me coming here and it doesn't take long to realize that actually everything I need is right in my little small room. You know, and compared to the simplicity here, it's like my life in the world feels so cluttered by comparison. Sometimes at home, I'll be sitting at night in my study, and I'll be sitting in the dark. But in the room, there'll be all these little lights, the light on the computer, and the light on the phone, and the light on the printer, and the light on the surge protectors, and the light on the zip drive. You know, so I'm sitting, and it's like control headquarters for my whole life. And then I think of being here, you know, where there's none of that. There's a wonderful feeling. It's a happiness, an unworldly pleasant feeling that's not rooted in desire. It's not rooted in aversion. It's not rooted in delusion. And that's the purity and the happiness that comes from the purity of these types of feelings. We experience non-sensual joy these unworldly pleasant feelings in states of concentration. You know, and you've all had, whether for longer periods or shorter periods, times when the mind actually settles into concentration. Usually, often, certainly as you begin the retreat, for most people, you know, the mind is scattered and wandering, jumping from one thing to another. But gradually, the mind settles And we begin to be able to sustain our attention without getting distracted. It's as if we get carried more and more on the stream, the current of mindfulness. There's an ease and a pleasure here in the concentrated mind that's much greater than even the pleasure of the most wonderful sense delights, Deepa Ma once sat for three days in a state of jhanic absorption. She just sat down, and three days later she got up. And it said the Buddha could sit in samadhi for seven days, you know, in just the state of the highest bliss. Now, what sense pleasure offers that possibility? Just imagine three days of non-stop eating or three days of non-stop music, or three days of non-stop sexual delight, at a certain point, first it would become exhausting. (laughs) And then at a certain point, it would really be undesirable. It's like we would get tired. We wouldn't want to continue. It's the limitation of that kind of pleasure. And yet, in the pleasure, the happiness of these unworldly feelings, we can abide in them, uninterruptedly, with delight, for long periods of time. So it's worth learning to recognize the difference between these kinds of feelings, as the Buddha is saying in the instruction, in the Sutta. we experience yet an even higher kind of non-sensual joy in the experience of meditative insight. Here it's not the absorption in the feelings that brings the happiness, but rather it is the happiness a vividly clear seeing, seeing deeply the momentary changing nature of things, the selfless, empty nature. And as our practice deepens in a whole variety of ways, it's not just through one way that it deepens, but as the mind gets still and as our mindfulness gets stronger, We have increasingly refined experiences of these pleasant, unworldly feelings connected with insight. I just want to read a little teaching from Mahasi Sayadaw. He said At times, the different objects to note may shrink to one or two, or all may even disappear. However, at this time, the knowing consciousness is still present. In this very clear, open space of the sky, there remains only one very clear, blissful consciousness, which is very clear beyond comparison and very blissful." So this is the, this is the happiness, of the bliss, or the pleasure of insight, of clear seeing. And then there's the happiness of freedom, of letting go of the subtle attachments even to these refined states, letting go of the attachment, any attachment at all, to bliss or to clarity or to non-thought. So that's even a higher kind of pleasure. So how do we apply this? How do we practice this discernment? We go back to the Sutta. The Buddha is telling us in this section of the Satipatthana Sutta, where he's delineating these different kinds of feelings, when a pleasant worldly feeling arises, this is from the Sutta, one knows I'm feeling a pleasant, worldly feeling. When feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling, one knows I'm feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling. And the same with unpleasant, the same with neutral. We notice the feelings as they arise, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and we notice whether they're worldly, connected with sense objects, when they're unworldly, connected with renunciation in one form or another. Now, there's a caution here, and the caution is not to make this too complicated so that it simply becomes a source of confusion or doubt, because you can easily imagine spending an hour just trying to figure it out. Oh, is this pleasant? Is it neutral? Is it worldly? Is it unworldly? And we just could begin to tie ourselves up in knots. So that's not the idea. Rather, simply use this as a framework of understanding. The Buddha was making this distinction very explicitly. This is the major part of the instruction on mindfulness of feelings. So there's something important here for us to learn. Just begin to notice in whatever way you can, without trying to overanalyze, but just begin exploring. You know, As feelings become predominant, whether they're predominantly noticeable, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, So just have in mind this framework of understanding of beginning to see the difference. Is it one that's connected with sense pleasures? Is it one that's connected with some state of renunciation? Either out of generosity, out of compassion, out of love, out of the precepts, out of concentration, out of insight. The different feelings that arise from those kinds of experiences. Now one last little piece on this. In these instructions, the Buddha is not saying that we should strive to only have these unworldly feelings. So he's not saying that, because that's impossible. We live in the world of sense contact. So a good many, and maybe even most of the feelings we have, will be worldly ones. That is based on sense contact. So both kinds will arise, and this is just our life. But if we can begin, even make a beginning, to get a sense of distinguishing... Oh, these are the worldly feelings, these are the unworldly ones, okay? With the worldly feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, then we can recognize the importance of being mindful of them so that we do not strengthen the underlying tendencies of attachment, aversion, or delusion. When we're not mindful of them, we are just strengthening those tendencies. So we want to see that. We want to notice that that is our conditioned response. Pleasant, I like. Unpleasant, I don't like. Neutral, I don't know what's going on. So we want to see that in our experience. And through mindfulness, decondition that response to those kinds of feelings. We learn to rest in the simple awareness, yes, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant, this is neutral. So the mind remains free in the experience of it. And then we also appreciate the potential of the unworldly feelings. We learn to recognize them, distinguish them. These feelings associated with meditative states the feelings associated with renunciation, we can begin to highlight, we can begin to illuminate them for ourselves. So we see the difference and understand that these feelings actually become part of the stream of our awakening, the stream of all liberation. So let's sit for a few minutes. And if you happen to have any worldly feelings, please notice them. If you have any unworldly feelings, please notice them. Maybe there's a feeling of stillness. Notice the pleasantness of it. Maybe the knee hurts. Notice the unpleasantness of it. This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Forest Refuge on March 10, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.